Our speaker this afternoon is David Derringer, Susan Morse Hillis, Senior Curator of Paintings and Sculpture and Director of Exhibitions here at the Boston Athenaeum. David received his PhD from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York with a specialty in 19th century American art. Before coming to Boston, he taught art history in New York and was chief curator at the National Academy of Design in New York. In 2002, he was the Thomas P. Johnson Distinguished Visiting Scholar at Rollins College, Winter Park, Florida. David has received fellowships from the Henry Luce Foundation, the City University of New York, and the Lucilia Foundation. He's lectured and published widely in the field of American art and has curated exhibitions in New York and Boston, including recent shows here at the Athenaeum, such as Lafayette, an American icon, and our current exhibition, Daniel Chester French, The Female Form Revealed. I invite you to visit the gallery if you haven't already done so. David is currently working on a book about public sculpture here in Boston. This afternoon, he will give a brief overview of Boston's Museum Without Walls and the role that sculpture plays in its history and aesthetics. Please help me in joining him. Please join me in welcoming David. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah, for that very nice introduction, and thank you all for coming out today, um, beating the rain, après moi le déluge, I guess, this afternoon. Uh, I should mention that this is a revised version of a, a talk I gave at the annual meeting of the Friends of the Public Garden in April, uh, having given and uh, written and given that talk at the request of the Friends. And now, evidently, thousands of people have asked, or maybe it was only two or three, uh, that, I, uh, that I give it again, uh, but I have revised it slightly uh, since that time. Uh, at any rate, thank you all for coming for this. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to dedicate this lecture to the memory of Cliff Crane, who died uh, just before Thanksgiving. Cliff was the founder and president of Daedalus Inc. in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is one of the premier sculpture conservation labs in this country. And um, we are all very lucky to have such a jewel close at hand, I can tell you. With his team, notably his son, Josh Crane, Cliff has been an indispensable force in the preservation and ongoing maintenance of many of the sculptures that I will mention today. Indeed, he and Josh have worked on sculptures, public and private, memorial and architectural, in marble, plaster, and bronze across the country, but especially in New York City, Washington, D.C., and of course here in Boston. Over the years, you may have seen a Daedalus truck parked on the common or near the public garden as this superb team of intelligent craftsmen and scholars made certain that monuments as diverse and as complex as St. Gaudens Shaw Memorial, the Brewer Fountain, and the Soldiers and Sailors Monument, and many, many more, will survive against the odds of wind, weather, and acid rain. Here at the Athenaeum, many of the sculptures in this very room, as well as others throughout the building and the collection, have been treated by Cliff, Josh, and their team. They brought Udon's large sculpture of Washington, now in the bow room just outside, back to life, and indeed snatched it from the brink of self-destruction. They intelligently disassembled, 
analyzed, beautifully restored, and reconstituted Robert Ball Hughes' great portrait of Nathaniel Bowditch, now on the second floor, at the same time that they were working on the bronze version at Mount Auburn, giving us unprecedented insight into the history of both objects. They carefully removed decades of soot, floor wax, and the stain of tobacco smoke from dozens of the Athenaeum's marbles and plasters. And most recently, they undertook a nearly two-year brilliant restoration and reinstallation of George Rickey's complicated kinetic sculpture, now back on view here at the Athenaeum for the first time in nearly a quarter century. Cliff will be sorely missed by curators, collectors, art historians, and all of us who treasure our art artistic heritage. Uh, thank you, Cliff. This is for you. Well, Greater Boston boasts a number of art museums, as you know, the Gardner, the ICA, the MFA, the Harvard Art Museums, and each of these places naturally has galleries for the display of art, and these galleries have walls and floors and ceilings. Even more naturally, however, the city has another art museum whose floor is earth, whose ceiling is sky, and whose walls are trees. Not to get overly romantic about it, but this special museum has three galleries, the Boston Common, the Boston Public Garden, and the Commonwealth Avenue Mall. And in these galleries is displayed 24-7, 365 days a year, open and accessible to all, an impressive collection of public sculpture. I don't know how professional urban planners or zoning boards see it, but I, for one, would suggest that a requirement for a town to achieve the status of city and for a city to be called great is that it have a well-integrated and superbly maintained system of parks, plazas, and other outdoor pedestrian places that are or have the potential of being adorned with the best of both historic and contemporary art. Uh, this might include murals, mosaics, and these days even digital projections, but the genre of art that has generally performed this role most consistently and when executed with vision and care most successfully has been sculpture. The art historian Kirk Savage has re re recently written about how American notions of nature's appropriate role in an urban environment have evolved over the past two centuries. As Savage has put it, we have gone from thinking of city parks and such as public grounds to thinking of them as public spaces. In this interpretation, public grounds, as the name implies, are organic, seemingly unplanned, or only slightly regulated spots with dimensions and shapes dictated more by nature than by man. The emphasis in such places is on what lies beneath, what grows from the earth, and what is recycled back into it. Uh, perhaps the idea is best represented by one of the great survivors and continuing exemplars of the type, the country's first garden cemetery, Mount Auburn, established, as you probably know, in Cambridge in the 1830s. 
On paper, Mount Auburn's organic roots are apparent in the seemingly random lines and curves of its plan, and in reality, when one is physically present in the space, are visible and palpable everywhere you go. The Boston Common is an even older example of the organic type, land that was set aside in the 17th century as common ground for the use of all citizens. Even today, the odd shape of the common belies its organic origins as public ground as opposed to public space. In fact, we might say that this comparative classification of ground versus space if we care to adopt it at all, has been made manifest here in the heart of Boston. Uh, this lithograph from 1870 illustrates this point, especially if we zoom in on part of it, that shows the organic plan of the common extending to create the more uniform space of the garden and beyond that of the mall. What we get then with these three plein air galleries of our outdoor museum, uh, now seen in plat form, is the best of both worlds. The meandering organic topography of the public ground of the common, the straight as an arrow grand boulevard public space of the mall, and in between the public garden, which if you think about it, suggests at least that it's a combination of both types of public ground and public space. And this is a good thing, because it means that the placing of sculpture in the common and the garden and along the mall can be a subtle mix of the seemingly random and the self-consciously planned. Examples in the former category have something of the accidental, momentary, and even participatory about them, although, of course, these have been planned and executed just as carefully as any of the others. For example, rather than standing uh, statically on a formal pre-planned axis, Bela Pratt's Edward Everett Hale emerges from a corner near the entrance to the public garden, amiably strolling along on the bias, much as we would wander through an open landscape ourselves. Similarly, Penelope Jinks' Samuel Eliot Morrison on the Mall does not stand erect on an architecturally designed pedestal as most of his sculptural neighbors do, but instead sits casually, if contemplatively, on a rock, which, for all we know, has been on this spot for eons. Or, considering this from a slightly different angle, for all of its intrinsic formality and symmetry, Martin Melmore's Soldiers and Sailors Monument has, since 1877, stood on a site on the common that probably has been there for eons, the highest geographic point in all of Boston's outdoor museum, a place created by nature and a natural, natural pedestal for a sculpture. These examples aside, however, it must be admitted that most sculptures within our three galleries have been placed with more obviously formal intent. Uh, this was especially uh, true for the earliest monuments to be erected here, as we can see in this plan from 1890, which actually identifies the five sculptures that had already been placed in the garden by that time. In reference to the garden's geometry and symmetry, as defined by a strong east-west axis, Thomas Ball's 
George Washington was erected in 1869 precisely on that axis, at either end of a line that bisects that axis at a right angle and has Washington at its center are Van Brunt and Ware's Ether Monument to the north and the first version of a statue of Lewis Cass to the south. Uh, this is not the first version I'm showing you. It's the second one. The first one is gone. Meanwhile, further back into the garden and to the east, there were three... Uh, uh, east of these three sculptures, two others were sited more or less symmetrically across the width of the garden from each other. William Wetmore Story's sculpture statue of Edward Everett on the north side, uh, which was near one of the entrances off Beacon Street, and Thomas Ball's Charles Sumner on the south along Tremont Street. These sculptures completed an arrangement that was dictated by the symmetry of this public space itself and that, at least for a time, helped to define and organize the space. In other words, the sculptures were arranged in much the same way that curators arrange collections of objects in the more traditional interior museum. Well, theories of urban planning aside, if we back up a bit and consider the sculptural inhabitants of our museum without walls chronologically, we soon begin to see that many of them are connected in ways other than their shared location and, as long as it lasted, their relational uh, sightings. Uh, by definition, most of these sculptures are commemorative, of course, and because of the time and place in which they were created, many of them make reference to the Civil War uh, as my colleague and scholar Ruth Butler is in the process of delineating. But some are also related to each other in more subtle ways, ways that have to do with subject and style and even the material out of which they're made. The limitations of this talk prevent me from cataloging all of the sculptures in our galleries, much less explaining the many political, economic, historical, and aesthetic connections between them, so I'll give you just a few examples, which I hope will give you a sense of what I mean. Of the sculptures that stand within the perimeter of the public garden today, the Ether Monument has been there the longest, so it's a good place to start. As you probably know, the anesthetic use of ether was discovered in Boston at Massachusetts General Hospital in October 1864. With the Civil War still raging, the significance of the discovery was lost on no one, certainly not on the Boston philanthropist Thomas Lee, who felt that a monument commemorating the historic event should immediately be erected in Boston. Lee was already fully aware of what a project like that would entail. Just two years earlier, he had commissioned a statue of Alexander Hamilton, from the artist, educator, and physician, William Rimmer. Rather oddly carved from granite, that sculpture had been installed in August 1865, right at the head of Commonwealth Avenue and facing directly across Arlington Street uh, front, uh, into the western end of the garden. Uh, thus, this makes Rimmer's Hamilton uh, actually the first figural work to be erected anywhere within the borders of our three gallery museum. His evident uh, admiration for Hamilton, the man aside, Thomas Lee wanted the new monument to the discovery of ether to have universal meaning, free of reference to any individual. 
Therefore, he took the unusual step of hiring not a sculptor, but an architect to make it, uh, this being Henry Van Brunt. Uh, with his professional partner, William Robert Ware, Van Brunt is remembered today for Harvard's Memorial Hall and the original First Church of Boston. As its patron, Thomas Lee wanted the Ether Monument to be a poetic expression of gratitude to God, his words, rather than a portrait of anyone. Uh, nevertheless, it was to have figural and even narrative components, and for that, Lee suggested that the architect seek the input of Dr. William T.G. Morton, the actual discoverer of ether. Now, it just so happened that Morton had recently seen this small bronze sculpture of a freed slave, which had been created and publicly exhibited the year before by a young New York sculptor named John Quincy Adams Ward, uh, it, at, who, as it would turn out, was uh, at, just at the beginning of a brilliant career himself. Well, Dr. Morton felt that Ward's Friedman was the most successful sculpted expression of both anatomical and aesthetic understanding, again, his words, that he had ever seen. And he advised Brand Brunt and Ware to hire Ward to create the sculpture that was to adorn, visually enliven, and actually define the monument. The fact that they did so to great effect makes the Ether Monument one of the first successful collaborations between American architects and an American sculptor, a type of collaboration that would become of increasing importance to the development of American art as the century progressed. Ward's job, Van Brunt directed, was to create a three-dimensional sculpture in granite for the top of the monument illustrating the biblical parable of the Good Samaritan plus four narrative relief panels in marble for the sides of the monument uh, relating the miraculous aspects of the discovery of ether and its uses, and I'm showing two of them here. <clears throat> Fearing that the texture and color of the granite statue above would clash with the white smoothness of the marble reliefs below, Ward pushed to have his figure of the Good Samaritan cast in bronze but Thomas Lee, who was paying for the whole thing anyway, had been so pleased with his recently commissioned granite statue of Hamilton that he insisted that the mater that material be used again, and so it was. The result, unveiled in September 1868, is a harmonious blend of the two arts of architecture and sculpture, complementary to and complemented by its setting. This is the way it looked last week and a fitting beginning to this phase of the history of public art in Boston. And I would argue that that success has at least something to do with Thomas Lee's slightly earlier involvement in the commission of the Hamilton Monument nearby, connecting the two sculptures in ways that are not necessarily apparent as you stand before them. Although the Ether Monument is today the oldest sculpture in the garden, the grand equestrian figure of George Washington that greets visitors at the western entrance to the garden was actually commissioned first, although it wasn't finished until after the Ether Monument. Uh, Boston had been contemplating an appropriate monument to Washington since at least 1811, as you can see in these documents published by the so-called Washington Monument Association. 
Uh, but political and economic issues kept delaying the project until finally, in the 1850s, the increasing civil unrest that would soon lead to civil war gave the matter a new sense of urgency and significance. Plans finally coalesced in 1859, seed money was raised, and the commission for the great long overdue monument was given to a local favorite, the sculptor Thomas Ball. Ball made a small but highly detailed plaster presentation of his design for the monument, which is now in the Boston Athenaeum's collection, and this was immediately approved by the committee overseeing it. He then undertook the complicated and laborious task of translating the small plaster into a full-size version uh, that would been, uh, then be used by the foundry to cast the finished product in bronze. Uh, but the in inevitable coming of the war and the resulting demand on material and personnel made it impossible to complete the project until the conflict ended. And it wasn't until late in 1867 that Ball was finally able to ship his large plaster model to the Ames Foundry in Chicopee, Massachusetts, where it would be cast. Free from the federal requisitions that had pretty much limited the foundry's output to weapons during the war, Ames could now concentrate on the more artistic but nevertheless complicated process of casting Ball's Washington in bronze. Uh, here's the horse's head sitting on the floor at Ames waiting to be cast. Uh, and this would take, as you can imagine, about two years to complete. Meanwhile, the committee overseeing the Washington Monument addressed two other pressing issues, how to raise money they needed to bring the whole thing to completion and where to put it once it was finished. Uh, the first of these issues was resolved in a way that relates the Washington Monument directly back to another sculpture in the garden. This was William Wetmore Story's statue of the great statesman Edward Everett, which had only recently been erected in November 1867 on the north side of the garden along Beacon Street. With its mission complete, the Everett Committee of wealthy Bostonians who had overseen that project found, rather amazingly, that they had a surplus of funds. So in a decision as remarkable for its wisdom as for its altruism, that committee pledged no less than $5,000 to help support the Washington Statute Committee. Meanwhile, discussions had been ongoing with the mayor of Boston and his minions about where the great equestrian figure would be erected, uh, the highest point in the Boston Common, uh, the place known as Flagstaff Hill, had been an early favorite. But now, in the late 1860s, with landscaping of the public garden finished and beginning to bear fruit, it was quickly agreed that the perfect spot for Washington was on that axis that divides the garden along its width. It took another year and a half to complete uh, the complicated casting process, but the magnificent bronze was eventually shipped in pieces to Boston and reassembled on site in the garden. There at the western end of the garden, it was installed on a pedestal that had been carved by granite workers in Charlestown, Massachusetts, and set into foundations laid by a leading Boston masonry and building firm. Thus, as Alexander Rice, chairman of the Washington Committee, proudly announced at its dedication, quote, 
the entire monument and its accessories of contributors, artists, founders, stonecutters, masons, and managers have been furnished from the resources of our own great state of Massachusetts. On July 3, 1869, the Washington Statue Committee officially presented the monument to the city, citizens of Boston. So again, we see how the success of one sculpture in our common garden mall complex, in this case, Balls, Washington, was dependent, at least in part, on circumstances surrounding another sculpture here, in this case, Stories Edward Everett. But there are other interesting parts of this matrix that we might note. For example, the pedestal on which Washington stands was designed by the architect Hammett Billings at just about the time that he was working on the Washington, Billings was also one of the contenders for the design of a monument to be erected on the aforementioned and now abandoned Flagstaff Hill and dedicated to Boston soldiers and sailors who had fought in the Civil War. Well, as we know, Billings did not get that commission. It went instead to Martin Milmore. But in fact, before either the Washington Project or the competition for the Soldiers and Sailors Monument, Billings already had been involved in plans for Boston's urban spaces. Here's an engraving based on his ideas about what the public garden should look like, published as a double wide in the popular periodical Gleason's Pictorial in 1853. And one more connective thread among these various civic projects. I mentioned earlier that the committee that had overseen the erection of the statue of Edward Everett in the public garden had thoughtfully donated some of its surplus funds to the completion of the equestrian Washington. The Everett committee also pledged a part of those funds to a newer idea that was being discussed in Boston in the late 1860s, a monument to one of the city's most mourned Civil War casualties, Robert Gould Shaw, and the African-American troops that he had led into battle. As so often happens with ambitious public projects, the one supporting a monument to Shaw was not immediately forthcoming. And whether or not any of the funds that the Everett Committee was so generously offering survived to see it carried out, I don't know. But happily, as we all know, that idea eventually grew into reality. And some 30 years later, led to the creation and erection on the edge of the Boston Common of what is arguably the greatest of all American sculptures. Today I've been able to give you only a small taste of the treasures that lie within the three gardens of our museum without walls, and only a hint of the ties that bind so many of them together in so many interesting and often unexpected ways. As Americans interested in our history and concerned with our artistic heritage, especially in these days of dark despair, we must all rejoice in the treasures that we have here, so close and so accessible. We should also celebrate the existence of the Friends of the Public Garden, which oversees the care, not only of these sculptural masterworks, but also the environment that they grace. As volunteer stewards of some of Boston's most important urban settings, this organization has taken on the daunting responsibility of preserving and maintaining the sculptures and fountains that inhabit these public grounds and spaces.
And since I have the honor to serve on the organization's sculpture committee, I can tell you that every penny of the funds that the friends so diligently pursue and raise is spent with great care and with exquisite results. In this calendar year alone, the Friends of the Public Garden have raised and budgeted funds to begin the long and complicated process of assessing and reconstructing the man-made framing elements as well as the natural environment that are so intrinsic to the aesthetic and historical presentation of St. Gaudens' great masterpiece. More immediate and now available for all of us to see and enjoy is the much anticipated and just completed restoration of not just the bronze figure that makes the George Robert White Memorial one of the most beautiful and moving sculptures in the public garden, but also its fountain and the landscaping surrounding the memorial. With all of this coming into bloom, figuratively now, but in the spring, literally, we can all better appreciate this as one of Daniel French's greatest allegorical achievements. Uh, this gives me the perfect segue to plug the Athenaeum's current exhibition. Uh, you knew I was going there. Daniel Chester French, an American sculptor in the female form, uh, which happens to include two of French's early models for the White Memorial. Here's one of them. So I hope you will all immediately retire into the gallery to bask in their beauty once I have released you to do so. And while I'm at it, I might as well give Daniel Chester French the last word. Besides, he knew more of what he was speaking than do I. Quote, the the effect of a monument or statue rightly placed, French told one of his patrons in 1914, does a great deal for the embellishment of a place. I have come to feel, in fact, that a mediocre statue rightly placed is of more value and importance than a good statue badly placed. The important thing is not so much to find a site for a great statue as it is to find a statue for a great sight. Thank you.